find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. And welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. And today, I am going to bring some information. People who have listened to my show may know that I did a show a while back about sex addiction. This is something I'm really skeptical about. But I mean, I'm always, I'm always willing to listen to both sides of, of an issue and, and get information and, and let you all make your own decision. Today, I'm going to bring you the other point of view on sex addiction. Dr. David Lang. He is a clinical psychologist in practice in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's the executive director of New Mexico Solutions, a large outpatient mental health and substance abuse program in Albuquerque. So he, he knows his stuff about addiction, y'all. Uh, Dr. Lay has been treating sexuality issues throughout his career. He first began treating perpetrators and victims of sexual abuse, but expanded his approach to include the fostering and promotion of healthy sexuality. And you all know I talk about healthy relationships on here a lot, too. He also helps people with the awareness of the wide range of normative sexual behaviors. His controversial second book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, was released in March 2012, challenging the concept that sexual addiction is a real medical diagnosis. And he, he explores a different model of male sexuality. And I think we all know that the media jumps on sex addiction stories frequently. So by releasing this book, don't think you're going to be surprised that he triggered a firestorm of debate. And it gave people the opportunity to, to finally challenge all this hype from the media about sex addiction. He speaks around the world about the myths of sex addiction and ways in which the mental health field is being subverted to enforce cultural values about sex. I love that sentence. And one other thing I want to share with you guys, and then we're going to let him chime in. First paragraph in the dedication of his book is, this work is dedicated first and foremost to the many clients who have allowed me to join them in their journeys through life as they struggle to make healthy decisions in their relationships and sexual behaviors. Along the way, I've met numerous men and women who shared the pain and shame they have experienced from being labeled sex addicts. Hopefully this book can help others like them. I absolutely love that. I read it and I said, I have got to share that. So David, it's great to have you with me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks, Nikki. You know, I was reading through your information, and I really think we're in sync about a lot of things, but you never know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's, oftentimes, I will say, even the, the sex addiction industry, which we can talk more about, they are well-meaning people. They're well-intended people who are trying to do good stuff. And I don't think that uh, oftentimes when I, when I debate them and discuss these issues with them, we're not really in disagreement about values. Both of us want to help people. But where we disagree is that I don't think that what they're doing is actually helping. In fact, pretty concerned that in many cases it's hurting people. But because we as a society have just sort of adopted and endorsed this idea, you know, one of the things I say is we're addicted to using the word addiction to describe any problematic repetitive behavior. Because we're using that word, we think we know what, it's mean, what it means, but we really don't. But unfortunately, the sex addiction label 
is actually shaming people. I love that you commented on my dedication. I've got to tell you, you're the first person since I wrote the book to even point that out, and I just want to say thank you. Well, that's cool. Like I said, what I did is I printed out the, the dedication page, because you never know what you can find there, and the table of contents, just to kind of get an overview. And uh, yeah. I've got it circled in red and arrows. We'll use this. <laughs> cool. Yeah, my, my first book is about female infidelity. It's called Insatiable Wives, Women Who Stray, and the Men Who Love Them. And I dedicated that book, first and foremost, to my wife. And, and everybody read that and said, oh, my God, you know, is your wife out there doing this? Is this, is this what's really going on? I said, oh, yeah, come on. No, no, no. The, you know, the, the rest of the dedication is to the people that, again, shared their lives with me and their, and their stories with me. So it's, it's, it's funny, uh, but, but I've got to say, you know, you're the first person that read it like that. I really appreciate that. That's nice. Well, you know, as, as a fellow writer, I understand what goes into all these things. So Yeah. It's like I've got, I've got one book, and it's got like, like an author's note and introduction all this, and I tell people, read it all. Every word is there for a reason. <laughs> so. Well, I love, I love the t- fact, and, and like I mentioned, I talk a lot on the show about having healthy relationships and identifying unhealthy things in your relationship. Because if you can get to a point where your relationship and your love and, and, and your sexuality with your partner is healthy, it's a whole different world. And so many people don't even, I, I mean, I get the strangest looks when I say healthy relationship to people in person. They look at me like, right. oh, I, I love that you include that in your description of, of the different things that you're working with. Absolutely. Why do you think, and you've actually gone, just what I've, I've read so far is so much deeper than I thought about this, but I love the, the perspective you've got on this because it, it seems like sex addiction is like the go-to excuse for people, like like Tiger Woods and, and all this. And it's like, you know, if you get in trouble, oh, I'm a sex addict. Yep. Why do you think it is that it's become so prevalent in, in our society today? Well, it's a complicated question. It is a complicated answer, in fact, because such a powerful kind of concept. I mean, one of the things I as a therapist argue is that things are multiply overdetermined. For any, for any significant thing that people do, there are many different reasons why we do it. I argue that, you know, that the concept of sex addiction is very powerful and has the staying power that it has because it, it does a few things. Um, I'll, I'll give them over, uh, an overview and then we'll go into more detail about them. But number one, it is a way to enforce moral and cultural values about sex. Um, number two... I, I love that point. Go ahead. I, yeah. I saw that in, in the notes you sent me. I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. Um, the second thing is that it is uh, a financially driven industry. There is a lot of money behind it. Um, and, uh, and that money is very powerful, both, both within the industry of the, of the therapists that receive the payment for providing this treatment and for the way that the media has, has used sex addiction. Um, the third thing is that it is something that seems like it gives an answer. It gives an answer to a hard question. Why would somebody do something stupid? You know, why would Bill Clinton, uh, president, you know, risk his, his marriage and his presidency and the respect of the nation to have oral sex from an intern? And Bill Clinton was called a sex addict when, when all of that happened in the 90s. That was actually, that was, the, that was some of the make or break time for the sex addict 
addiction concept. That's when the media really bought into this. So the idea of sex addiction gives an easy answer. Well, why did somebody do this? Oh, because they're addicted. We think that that's an answer, but then when you really sort of drill down into this, you find that it's not. The last thing is that this is about male sexuality and the fact that 95% of the alleged sex addicts are male says something. The fact that uh, studies have shown that the majority of these sex addicts are white males who make over $85,000 a year says something. This is about male sexual privilege and uh, a shift in society. So, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is that sex addiction really came onto the uh, social spectrum and into the social dialogue in the early 80s. Now, in the 1800s and 1700s, we had the diagnosis of schizophrenia. I mean, I apologize. We have the diagnosis of nymphomania. We still have the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Um, when women were diagnosed as being, you know, too sexual, and awful things were done to these women. They had lobotomies. They had clitorectomies. They were hospitalized. Uh, all kinds of just, just horrendous things. Um, it, it, during that same time, masturbation was also identified as being a sickness. And, you know, Harvey Kellogg, who invented Kellogg's cornflakes, he invented Kellogg's cornflakes because he thought that a bland food would reduce the level of physical stimulation that people would get and prevent them from masturbating too much. We found out uh, that, you know, guess what? Masturbation is actually very healthy for you, that many of the things that we believed were the result of, of masturbation, masturbating too much, you know, the old story, masturbation will make you go blind. That comes from a physician in the 1700s who's named Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush was actually a signer of the Declaration of Independence, which is just extraordinary. But Benjamin Rush also believed that masturbating too much would make people go blind, and he prescribed things like leeches around their genitals to prevent them from masturbating too much. Well, it turns out that what all of these folks were seeing as the result of too much sex and too much masturbation masturbation was actually the result of untreated sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea and syphilis, which, guess what, affect your behavior, affect your judgment, and affect your vision. So when we, in the early 1900s, we gave up the idea that masturbation was an illness. You know, the, the invention of antibiotics made those sexually transmitted diseases kind of go away, and all of a sudden we realized, hey, masturbation's not the problem here. But... In the early 1980s, a couple of things happened. First, the HIV crisis hit, and all of a sudden, unrestrained, secret male homosexual behavior and male sexual behavior in general could now potentially put people's life at risk. And Oprah had you know, folks on her show that were talking about secret male bisexual behavior and the whole down-low phenomenon. And part of the scare tactic was, wow, these men's secret behaviors might be causing them to give you a deadly disease. And at the same time, Patrick Carnes, uh, is a psychologist, and he really was, is the father of sex addiction, he published this book saying that 
sex was addictive and liking it too much and pornography and having too much anonymous sex and too much masturbation was an illness. So all of a sudden, when, when sex became dangerous again, we had this disease that could be used to explain it. The other thing that happened around that same time was that society changed in the way that we view male sexuality. And, you know, if you remember the movie or the TV show, The Married with Children, Al Bundy. Al Bundy was an idiot who was led around by his penis. That became the image of men and male sexuality. Now, all of a sudden... When a man got in trouble for his sexual behaviors, now all of a sudden we had an excuse, and that excuse was sex addiction. You know, Jack Kennedy had more sex in and out of the White House than Bill Clinton ever dreamed of. John Kennedy once told the president of another nation that if he didn't have sex with a different girl every day, Kennedy got headaches. But he wasn't called a sex addict. But Bill Clinton, you know, sex with one intern all of a sudden was. Why? What changed was social views about men and about sexuality, where now men are being held to the same standards that we've held women to. It's awfully interesting, and I think hypocritical, that all of a sudden now when men are being expected to be monogamous if they agree to it, and men are being held to the same kind of sexual standards that we've held women to, all of a sudden we give them this excuse, sex addiction. It's not my fault. Interesting. I mean, I was kind of researching some of the different terms before before we did the the culture. Yeah. Like nymphomania. Okay, so it's it's a bad thing when women have it, but you have an excuse if you're a man. And then we've got hypersexuality, sex addiction, nymphomania, Don Juanism. I really enjoyed the definition for Don Juanism. I hadn't hadn't heard the, the second part of that. There are dozens of terms, and every term has its own people that are fans of it, and every term has its own little kitschy little definition. And as a result, this is one reason why we can't scientifically really examine in this concept because all of these terms overlap and disagree slightly. And really, when you look at it, you know, nymphomania and Don Juanism are great examples. Don Juan was a a poem by Lord Byron, one of my favorite poets. And he was a man who, you know, kind of like Casanova, he chased women around and he, you know, he was only excited or happy when he was pursuing a new woman and a new sexual conquest. Both of these terms reflect social sexual values. uh, uh, Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, the famous sex researcher, he said it best, the definition of of an infomaniac, a sex addict in today's language, is somebody who has more sex than the therapist. And and ultimately, that that's what the deal is. We're we're talking about subjective cultural values. You know, when when Tiger Woods was you know being castigated in the press in the United States for being a sex addict, in South America, the man was a hero because in Latin America, the more mistresses a man has, the more macho he is, the more masculine and virile he is. He ain't called a sex addict there. You don't have sex addicts in the Middle East where, you know, where, again, male sexuality isn't treated the way that we are treating it right now in, in the United States. I'm not arguing about whether or about how we treat male sexuality, whether we treat it right or wrong. I don't really give a crap. 
But what I do give a crap about is don't use medicine, don't use medical diagnoses to enforce these cultural values because that gets us into danger. That takes us back into the days when being homosexual was, was, was a disease. And we gave that up in the 1970s. But all of a sudden, remember I was talking about HIV, the gay and bisexual males are at three times the risk of being called a sex addict compared to other men. Why? Because they may have sexual desires that they're, they're not sharing, that they are afraid of, that they're ashamed of, or that are not socially acceptable. And so they hide them and they try and control those desires. And then ultimately, you know, when, when somebody's in the closet, it's really hard. They may kind of erupt and break and go out and explore that sexual desire and those sexual needs and then feel bad about it. Well, that is about the social attitude towards those sexual desires, not that sex is a disease or an addiction, but that's the way we're treating it when we use these words sexual addiction. You know, it's interesting because I've I've very often have said that I, I think one of the issues in a lot of relationships is the societal crap that women are, are made to deal with as far as sexuality. Mm-hmm. These, you're supposed to be a certain way to be acceptable or a good yep. girl, quote unquote, you know. And if, and if you don't fall into this little niche, then you're bad and you're supposed to feel guilty. And, and I, I think a lot of men don't grasp, and, and crap is the best word I can think of, <laughs> that, that a lot of <laughs> women have jumped on their head. Oh, yeah, abs- absolutely. You're not yeah. supposed to enjoy anything. You're not supposed to initiate anything. If you yeah. do, you're bad. Yes. It's interesting that, that you talk about the same sort of thing with this. I like uh, You know, entirely. I mean, I think that becomes really the, the go-to point here. And, and when I argue against this, people say, you know, no, look, there are people out there that are suffering with this, and they're suffering with these desires. And my response is, show me that they are suffering from these problems separate from the cultural rejection and suppression of their sexual desires. If you can show me that, I might believe that this is an illness. But we're not supposed to diagnose illnesses when just because what somebody wants is in conflict with their, with, their, with their society and with their cultural values. You know, there was a study that came out just a couple of months ago by a researcher named Grubb. He supported the premise that, that, that I've been exploring in a lot of my writing, which is that ultimately this largely comes down to a religious and a moral conflict. And he showed a, an amazing thing. He showed that. When they looked at people who use pornography, predominantly men, they found that the identification as a porn addict had more to do with the, that person's moral and religious beliefs. If they had grown up in a household that had strong religious prohibitions against sex, they were more likely to self-identify as being addicted to sex and pornography regardless of how much sex or porn they actually had. So again, what we're talking about here is an internal conflict between people's sexual desires and society, which is telling them um, that they shouldn't want that kind of sex or that much sex. You know, uh, being LGBT, being kinky, and being into bondage and discipline, all of these kinds of behaviors or desires have been called sexually addicted. 
or sexually addictive because people treat those desires as you shouldn't want that. Well, I might not, it might be a problem with me wanting that, but it's only a problem because you think I shouldn't want it. Or you um, think I'm bad because I want it. Yes, exactly. Precisely. And, and, and unfortunately, that, that is the dilemma with the sex addiction industry that I talked about. You know, the majority of this industry, they, they are they're cash pay only um, because insurance doesn't cover it because it's not an accepted diagnosis. Sex addiction has been rejected as a diagnosis for the past 40 years by the mental health community and by the, the uh, American Medical Association and Psychiatric Association. So insurances won't pay for it. So but people, people, if they want sex addiction treatment, um, and a lot of people do because they think they're a sex addict because the media tells them if you want too much sex, you must be a sex addict. Or if your husband or boyfriend or girlfriend want more sex than you, it's because they're addicted to sex. I've seen patients where one partner wanted sex once a week, the other partner wanted sex once every three months, and guess what? The partner who wanted sex once a week was called a sex addict by the other one. So it's all relative. But they go for treatment, and they have to pay cash for it. Now, some of these places charge $1,000 a day for residential sex addiction treatment. It is cash only. And the treatment that they provide, there's absolutely no evidence that it works. There's no scientific evidence that sex addiction treatment helps people get better or change their lives. And in fact, there's increasing evidence that it might actually be damaging because it ignores the many often very real significant mental health or relationship problems that do exist because people over-focus on sex addiction. And this is, this is again, number three in my kind of list of why this, is, why this is so powerful is because sex addiction we think is an answer. We think it's an explanation, but it's an explanation that doesn't actually explain anything. Why, do you, why does somebody want too much? want all this sex because they're addicted to it. We think that that is telling us something, but really it's just kind of empty words. And in fact, the mental health industry, and, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist, and I do a lot of very you know, significant mental health substance abuse treatment. My agency treats over 2,000 clients a year. We are not using the word addiction very much anymore because it's not precise enough. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Just the way that the word moron used to be a very specific medical term years ago, and then we stopped using it because society took it over and we started using it in common language. Now, if you look at it, you can be addicted to chapstick, you can be addicted to tanning bed, you can be addicted to Harry Potter. At, you know, and at that point, it doesn't mean anything. It's just empty noise, basically, where somebody is saying, you're doing that too much and I don't like it. Well, that doesn't, from a medical perspective, that doesn't help me very much. And from the perspective of somebody who's trying to improve their life and figure out what the problem is, the word addiction is a distraction. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're validating all these things that keep going around in my head, and I'm like, but I'm not trained in this, so I could be wrong. But I, Sure. 
You know, I'm glad that folks like you are out there, coaches that are doing this kind of work. The you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy about whether whether coaches are good or bad, and and I think that most of the people that go to coaches like you are people that for one reason or another, oftentimes because they're afraid or ashamed, they won't come to a therapist like me. And so the fact that they're reaching out to people like you, I think is absolutely wonderful. Now, I've written that I think coaches would benefit from having folks like me as a backup to them because sometimes you guys can get into issues of suicide or mental health issues or depression that you might not have support to deal with. But I think the more coaches, frankly, the better, and the more we have a system where people can reach out and get help, absolutely the better. The, the only thing I worry about a little bit is that like in the sex addiction industry, there are lots of folks who say that they are coaches to help with that and their sole experience is that they themselves um, identify as a sex addict and so now they're charging you money to help you not be a sex addict anymore. I've got a problem with that because it's too subjective again, yeah? Medicine is not supposed to be subjective. And if you're making decisions based solely on your own experience, then it's just like what Kinsey said. You've got a problem if you do something different from what your coach thinks you should. That's not necessarily helpful. My, my thing as a coach is I see it as my responsibility to understand the limitations of what I can handle and to say, you know, if it gets to a certain point, they need to go to somebody else. I'm, I'm always looking for people to add to my network, whether, whether it's coaches or therapists or counselors or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, and a lot of people just need a helping hand. They just oh, absolutely. Need. I tell people, too, when, when they go, what in the world is a coach? <laughs> you know, yeah. I tell them that I'm here to help you make the difference in your life. I'm not going to do it for you. you know, it, you're going to work. And the thing is, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to increase and improve your skills and to make you better at whatever it is we're going to work on. Yep. One of the important things is to help people understand their problems because, you know, when, when we've dug ourselves into a hole, we're sitting there down at the bottom of this hole and there's dirt piled all around us and we can see a little bit of sky above us, but we don't know what to do other than to keep digging. And I think that oftentimes that person needs help figuring out what their problem is. And if they can get that help figuring out what their problem is from a coach or a therapist or a friend who is willing to listen and often offer guidance, I think that's wonderful. My worry, especially with the media, is that we are telling people things are a problem in a way that confuses them. I had a young man call my office a few weeks ago who said that he wanted to come in. He said he was a porn addict. He said he was 22 years old and he'd been masturbating to pornography since he was 15 and it was a big problem in his life and he was ready to get in charge of this. And I said, well, you know, come on in. I don't believe in porn addiction, but let's talk about what's going on and how I can help. Well, and then the guy says, oh, by the way, while I'm there, we should also talk about the fact that I'm using IV heroin every week. The guy is shooting up IV drugs, but he thinks porn is his big problem. And unfortunately, that's the damage and that's the danger. You know, a lot of your listeners, you know, they're seeing the news where, you know, folks are saying that porn causes rape and they're saying that porn causes sex abuse and they're saying that, you know, wanting too much sex and and wanting, you know, even being unfaithful and infidelity is about 
sex addiction and and they're scared they're scared then of their sexuality and all of us I think can look back in our lives and we can see places where we made bad decisions because we were turned on I call it sex goggles you're turned on and you maybe don't use a condom when you should or you maybe have sex with somebody that you wouldn't have sex with if you weren't pretty worked up and horny we can all look at that and say, okay, I, I can see where that could get far enough that it could become an addiction. But the reality is that we are made to really enjoy sex and to want to have sex whenever we can so that we reproduce. That makes us sometimes make bad decisions about sex. That's not because sex is a disease. That's because it's natural, and that's, that is the way our species reproduces and continues. To understand that sometimes we might make bad decisions about sex, and it's just like any other kind of environment where we might recognize that I need to be aware of the chances I can make a bad decision here. But it's not because sex is bad. It's not because sex is a, is a disease or an uncontrollable force. The, one of the big problems I have with the sex addiction idea is that it is promoting this idea that it, people are not responsible for their choices because sex it's made me what I was do just it. Thinking. Exactly. That's right. You know that that that. I'm sorry, I apologize for cussing, but that asshole in Detroit, Ariel Castro, who held those three women captive for years as his sex slaves, that guy, guess what? He wrote that he was worried that he was a porn addict and that that was why he did it. Well, no, dude, you did it because you were an asshole because you didn't respect women, because you, you know, didn't respect rules and the rights of other people. Porn is not the problem. You are. And that's what I tell people who, who come in and say, well, I'm a porn addict I, or, or a sex addict. I say, you know what? Sex and porn ain't the problem. You are. You can make better decisions. You know, and there are listeners who, you know, who will be listening to this show, and they will argue with me, and they'll say, you know, my husband or my wife, they were addicted to sex and they did all these behaviors and they lost their job and, and they, they ruined our marriage or they gave me a sexually transmitted disease. And I say, you're right, and it's awful that they did that, but they made choices and those choices were made by them, not by sex. They are responsible for the good and bad choices that they make. We shouldn't call sex a disease with the idea that it explains it. And I can show you case after case after case of people who go into court and people who go to their wives and girlfriends and husbands and boyfriends and say, I'm not responsible, I'm an addict. I've got a big problem with that. Well, that's like saying, saying that you're an addict, it helps you to like get rid of all accountability. It's like, yep. oh, I can't control this. Okay, maybe you can't control it, but that, that's because you choose not to control it. Exactly, exactly. You know, Sam Brownback, uh, uh, he was a senator, very, very conservative guy, and he gave an example of men that when, when they would check into the hotel, they would have the, the hotel remove the television from the room so that the guys wouldn't be tempted to uh, use pornography and run up their credit card bill. Now, Brownback said, see, look, that is how dangerous pornography is. I look at that and I say, wow, 
look how thoughtful those, are, those guys are of making good decisions and planning for them to make good decisions. Sex is not this all-powerful, overwhelming desire that takes away our free will. We have to think about it, and we need to be thoughtful. We need to, make, we need to prepare ourselves for making good decisions. But just because we're turned on doesn't mean that we can say sex is the problem. It ain't my fault. That's like the, I was reading a news article the other day about, and, and this is a whole other topic, but that in um, Islam, the, the man, if, if he attacks a woman, it's her fault because she showed her skin. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so they're, they're like, I have no accountability. It's her fault. It's like, no, it's not yep. her fault. Yes. Men are responsible for our arousal. And, and I will tell you, as a man, I am absolutely offended by the accusation of sex addiction because it is saying to me as a man that being turned on is more powerful than me and I am not strong enough to be responsible for that. Well, screw you. I as a man am responsible. You know, I actually had a patient in one of our groups the other day who told one of our female therapists that, um, you know, the dress she was wearing was a problem for him and would she please move or go put on pants? And my response was, wait a minute, buddy. Your arousal is yours to manage. If you need to move, do so. But it's, it's not appropriate to ask the world and everybody around you to conform to your needs so that you can control yourself. That ain't the way it works. There's a program here in Santa Fe that allegedly, when they have sex addicts, they have, men, they have these men walk around with a sign on their chest that says, um, if you are a woman, please don't talk to me with the implication that they as a man cannot control their arousal if a woman talks to them. Well, I think that is offensive. You know, one of the one of the things you said in the intro is that I'm, you know, I'm presenting on a different kind of view of male sexuality. And I think that when we tell men that you can't be responsible when you get turned on, we are saying the we we're saying the exact same thing that you said about, you know, the Islamic kind of tradition, and it's just like the whole date rape myth. Well, he got too turned on to control himself. You were too beautiful or you were too sexy for him to control himself. Screw that. I can control myself, and if I can't or if I choose not to, I am responsible for that. Don't go trying to put the blame on sex or the dress you were wearing. That's offensive to me. Overall, there's a whole lot more entitlement mentality than that I ever remember there being before, much more widespread. And there's a lot more people that just don't feel that they're accountable for anything. Both of those work into this. So like the person thinking, I'm entitled to do what I want, and and I'm not accountable for anything I do. So I'm going to do all this, and I'm going to blame an addiction, and it's your fault. And I'm a victim. Sex and porn took me over. It's not my fault. 
porn was just too powerful. You know, in every case I have ever looked at of somebody that is being called a sex addict, whether they are choosing to call themselves a sex addict or a porn addict or whether that label is being applied to them, I will tell you that there is some other issue that's going on. Either this is an individual who wants more sex than the other partner, and there's a conflict over that. Um, or this is a person who uh, has other mental health conditions, depression or anxiety, and the sexual problems or behavior are just a symptom of that. Or it's a person whose sexual desires are not socially acceptable and culturally suppressed, and they're being called a sex addict. Or it is somebody who is trying to avoid responsibility. And I testify in court about this. I do forensic cases where people, lawyers, bring me in to challenge the idea of sex addiction when somebody has gone to court and said, well, you know, I know I did this bad thing, but it's really not my fault because I'm a sex addict. And then attorneys bring me in to say, well, no, slow down there, brother, because there ain't no such thing as sex addiction. You would be fun to watch in court on that kind of thing. (laughs) Okay. What is your advice to a couple? You know, I was was just thinking, too, that that by a spouse telling the, the other spouse who wants more sex that they're a sex addict, that's validating their opinion that there's too much sex or there shouldn't be any. That's right. That's right. You know, it raises the question. I know you've got a question there, but it raises the question is, what is too much sex? And the answer is, there ain't no such thing. That The research, <laughs> in fact, shows that the more sex people have, the healthier they are, the longer they live. People who masturbate more make more money, have higher incomes. Men who have more sex live longer women who masturbate more and and or have more sex with their partner have healthier relationships on and on and on there just ain't no such thing as too much sex being unhealthy so the dilemma is when as you, as it sounded like you were asking when one partner wants more sex than the other one and unfortunately in long term relationships That is absolutely guaranteed to happen because over the lifetime of sexual development, there are fluctuations in how much sex people want. And women, by and large, across the spectrum, um, end up reducing the amount of sex over time around around age 45 or 50 as they hit menopause. Their desire for sex oftentimes goes down, but not not, not, not universally. However, that we don't see that same level of decrease in men until around age 72. So it's guaranteed in the life of a relationship, whether it's because of stress or age or physical issues, that there are going to be times that you want sex more or less than your partner does. That then becomes a dialogue. It becomes something to talk about. But unfortunately, right now in our society, that's not an acceptable conversation. There's a lot of people impacted by that, too. It, it's floored me, the number of people that, that I know personally yep. and that I've run into in, in coaching. That well, and, Or, like, one, one spouse will just decide, okay, we're not going to have sex anymore, and it's just never talked yeah. about again. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
I right. I, I've seen the same thing. Couples that come in and, and they haven't had sex in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I, we never talked about that. How did that happen? Well, we just kind of stopped. Well, is that what you wanted? No, I want to have more sex. And then you talk to the other partner. Well, is that what you want? No, I'd like to have sex, but I wanted it in this certain way and it just wasn't happening. So we stopped. I think it's the dialogue. I think it's the conversation. But unfortunately, in this environment, you know, the person who says, I want to have more sex is then accused of being addicted or is accused of wanting infidelity. And and then there becomes this kind of blackmail kind of idea that, well, if you don't have as much sex with me as I want, then I'm... Uh, then, then the other person thinks, well, you're going to go cheat. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let's talk about that or not. Um, the question of monogamy, you know, is, is monogamy a, a, a real valid expectation for everybody? I think that it works for some people and not for other people. I don't know if it works for most people or not. But I think that the expectation of sexual fidelity is one that we hold as a value because we think it is culturally and morally appropriate. But physiologically and based upon our human kind of history, we all have to kind of look at the fact that there are some of us where infidelity or sexual fidelity period is tough. And we need to own that. But we don't, have a con- we don't have an ability to have that conversation these days. You know, the other question along these lines is porn. One of the arguments I make is that, you know, the accessibility to Internet porn has actually decreased infidelity because now people can masturbate to pornography and not cheat on their partner, not leave the house, not touch another person. But unfortunately, then, we have this kind of perspective that, well, using pornography is a form of infidelity. Is it or isn't it? I, I can't make that rule for you. You and your partner have to sit and discuss that. You guys need to have this conversation. But we don't. We've got to talk about these things. We've got to talk about what our sexual values are. But 90% of couples don't talk about these things. They don't talk about their sexual fantasies. They don't talk about their sexual desires. They don't talk about the things that they wish their partner would do that they're not. Right. Do you know how much trouble I've been? I mean, you know, <laughs> well, my God. You know, Dave, David Duchovny, the star of, of X-Files, right, his attorneys threatened to sue me because every time the newspapers run an article about me and my argument against sex addiction, they would run a picture of Dave Duchovny, famous sex addict who goes to sex addiction treatment. Well, his attorneys threatened to sue me, and they said, you've you got to stop using Dave Duchovny's picture. And I said, it ain't me. Talk to the newspapers. Whatever. So, you know, the idea that I'm threatening this and challenging this, and I'm, I'm calling this out, and I'm saying the emperor has no clothes, people hate me like you would not believe. I get hate mail for calling this, you know, what it is, pretend and fiction and snake oil. So, you know, Nikki, <laughs> in terms of being a troublemaker, that's pretty clearly why we get along so well. I, yeah, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what do you think about the expectation of monogamy in a relationship where one spouse or the other refuses to have sex with their partner? It's a tough one, and I think that I don't have 
I don't have a universal answer to that. You know, it's a case-by-case kind of basis. My friend Dan, Dan Savage, he talks about the fact, he argues that in that situation, the person who chooses to be unfaithful and not talk about that with their partner, he says that person is really moral and within their rights. I don't know. I don't know that I can say that universally. I do think that it is a tough, tough situation that people wrestle with. And unfortunately, the dilemma is people get married when they're in that rush of love and excitement and they're not real honest or open about what their needs are or what their desires are. And then when things start happening and they stop having sex, it's tough. It's tough to open that door. I have had, I've had some couples and some individuals where you know, that kind of don't ask, don't tell infidelity was okay and healthy. I've had others where it was symptomatic of a lack of respect for the other person and the relationship. So I think that I I think it's a very difficult question that has a lot of different potential answers to it that people really have to explore thoughtfully. You know, I'm working on a new book right now called Gentleman's Guide to Responsible Porn Use. And ultimately, I think that really is the same kind of answer here, is can you make decisions in an ethical, responsible way and own them. Unfortunately, so many people make that decision and you know, to, to cheat, for instance, and then they excuse it after the fact by saying, well, we weren't having sex anymore. I think if you're going to make that decision, you need to think about it and think about it thoughtfully in those ways before you have sex with somebody else, not afterwards. Very true. So I... I Guessing that as a child you didn't say, I'm going to go into some field that people are going to send me hate mail. I mean, I'm wrong. So, you know, you, you were sitting on, or on the curb one day and go, I want to make people mad. Well, you know, with, with the last name Lay, I had the option of becoming a politician who got involved in a sex scandal like Anthony Weiner or becoming a therapist who worked with sex. I chose the latter. The the course by which I ended up doing this, you know, I'm, I'm a traditional psychologist, but for years I worked with sex offenders because I was relatively non-reactive and I could work with those issues without getting so jammed up in these, in these moral issues. And I could help these people who needed help. But over the years, people started bringing me more and more kind of sexually related issues because unfortunately most, are, most clinicians and most therapists are very poorly trained in sexuality. Most doctors are as well. Fewer than 30% of medical schools provide training in sexuality, which is really extraordinary. So over the years, uh, cases started coming to me more and more that were sexuality related and that were like, you know, things that were a little bit outside the norm, but they weren't necessarily abusive or unhealthy. They were just outside the norm and other people didn't know what to do with them. So I started looking at this and I started writing about it and I, I started investigating and figuring out how I could help these people better and finding out that there were a lot of people out there like that. Right now, the, the majority of my personal practice is these kinds of clients who are king 
kinky or have sexual desires that other clinicians don't understand, they come to me for treatment. Now, oftentimes the treatment is about other issues, but they don't want to be stigmatized or judged by other clinicians who would look at that sexual desire to be spanked, for instance, and think that that makes them sick and that that is the focus of treatment. Interesting. I can I can definitely see how that's that's a, a niche that has a lot of potential patients. Yeah, you know, there's a there's there's a, a site called Kink Aware Professionals. It's run by the National Coalition of Sexual Freedom, and your you know your listeners can go there and they can find listings of lawyers and therapists and massage therapists who can help people who identify as being sexually different. You asked about me as a kid. You know, I, you wouldn't know, we're on the radio, but I have one hand. I was born with a physical disability where I just have one hand. And as a kid, I was different. And I know what it's like to be different. And when I was a teenager, I used to get in lots and lots of fights. And the fights that I got in mostly were when other kids were picking on my friends. There is nothing that I hate more than a bully who is picking on people because they're different. And my clinical practice and my writing is really that same thing. You know, just because somebody wants more sex than you think they should, or just because somebody wants a kind of sex that you think they shouldn't want, doesn't give you the right to bully them or shame them or stigmatize them. And I'm going to call you out on that because I do not like bullies and I will take you on. One of the questions I was going to ask you is if you think, you know, as, as a, a trained professional, people could have too much sex. So I'm glad you went ahead and answered that. <laughs> Can you imagine if people would just accept other people and say, you know what, you're different from me, viva la différence, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, and unfortunately that that's kind of the social dynamic that we have right now is this extremism where if you're not just like me and if you don't want the same things that I want just the same way, then you're wrong. And I think that, you know, as a therapist, I live in shades of gray. I live in the, in the, in the world where... People don't make black and white decisions. It's always complicated. And, and I think that we can do better as a society and as individuals by understanding ourselves, understanding our desires, and talking about them. You know, one of the things, that, one of the things I talk about, maybe it's a little, little over the top, but, you know, the, the most common male sexual fantasy is to have a threesome with two women. So you would think that the majority of Internet pornography would then be dominated by threesomes of a man with multiple women, right? But in fact, it's the reverse. In fact, the Internet is dominated by images of multiple men with a single woman. Well, why is that? What we have found is that when a man watches pornography with a, multi- with, with a single man, uh, and, and one woman or multiple women, he ejaculates less and his ejaculate contains more, less sperm than if he watches a video with multiple men and a single woman. That again, the way we were made and the sperm competition that used to happen in our evolutionary history where a man and his sperm had to compete with the uh, sperm of other men to to reproduce and and to procreate affects our sexual desires and our choices today. I think it is incredibly important that we know that and we understand that about ourselves 
so that we can understand why some of the things that we want are so powerful. I think there's lots of things out there like that that people don't know, that they haven't been educated about, that, that we can't even talk about in polite society that affect our decisions and then affect the chances that we might call ourselves an addict because it's an easy answer. Interesting. That's, huh. Well, it, so it's not so much about being turned on when they watch the porn. It's more about the competitive edge of it, It's the both. The, the physiological arousal that goes along with that sperm competition increases their sexual arousal. So that, you know, a man, again, you know, the, the makers of porno, you know, pornographic websites learned this, and they learned it through the free market economy because they found that when they had porn videos of multiple men and a single woman, more people would watch those videos, they would watch those videos for longer, and they would come back to the site more because in that sperm competition scenario, a man is more likely to get aroused and get erect sooner than if he watches a video with a single man and multiple women or just one woman. That competition environment triggers more powerful physiological and psychological sexual arousal. Not because that kind of pornography is addictive, but again, because that's kind of the way that we're made. Now, it's important to understand that, but we're not going to understand it if you use some cop-out label like saying, like saying it's addictive. Saying you're an addict kind of excuses you from doing the introspection and actually analyzing what you're doing and your motivations and all that sort of thing. Oftentimes it does. They go to you know, you. They, they, yeah, the main focus in the 12-step sex addiction treatment is stop doing that kind of sex. Wait a minute. Let's talk about why. Let's talk about what the problems are that are, that are, that are causing that. Maybe the person needs to stop it, but maybe they don't. And we don't get to have that conversation in the addiction model. Interesting. It's about out of time. I told you, I don't, have any, I don't have any problems filling up all kinds of time. I can talk about this stuff all day long. Like I said, I was, I was looking at the table of contents of your book going, okay, that's about 10 programs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I have a copy of it. So I well, I'm glad it. you do, yeah. Yeah, and you know, the, the, myth of, the myth of sex addiction, it's available online at Amazon, um, and it's, a, it's coming out in paperback actually this month, I think. So it's, you know, so it's available more you know, cheaply. It's also available on Kindle. And then I've, um, I also write on psychology today. I write about all of this stuff. I write about kink and sexual stigma. Um, I write about you know, whether porn is addictive or not. Uh, and then I'm on Twitter at Dr. David Lay. And your last name is spelled L-E-Y. L-E-Y, yep. Yep, want to make sure, because you got to spell exactly right on Twitter. And you've got to say whatever you got to say briefly. So I like that. You, absolutely. I'm having a lot of fun on Twitter. It's been, it's been an opportunity to, to connect with a lot of people around the world that are having this debate. You know, in Britain, the porn addiction label is being used to justify uh, nationwide censorship of the Internet. And so it's a very important conversation to have to think about in terms of how these labels and how these moral attitudes are being used to affect our lives, our politics, and our laws, but these things aren't based on science, and we should be aware of that.
Very true. Well, and people people need to stop letting the the media tell them what's right and wrong. You know, do your own <laughs> research about stuff. Yeah. The, and the that is definitely one of the things agenda. I argue. Yeah, that's why I love I love having the internet because I'm I'm one of these people I want to dig into things and I want to see both sides of the story and and I'm going to come to my own conclusions, you know. And the internet gives you the opportunity to do that on such a huge scale. It does. It, it does. Unfortunately, right. there is as much bad information out there as as there is good, you know. And on the internet, it oftentimes doesn't matter whether you're right as much as it matters how loud and repetitive you are. Uh, you know, there's, there's, yeah, yeah, there's a group on Reddit um, called the NoFap community where they have given up masturbation and they argue that masturbating to pornography causes erectile dysfunction. It doesn't and there's no research that supports it. But because they believe it and because they're loud about it and obsessive about it, um, they convince people that maybe it's true. So the Internet is a fabulous place to do research, but take it with a grain of salt especially when it comes to this kind of subjective, on-the-fringe levels of science and medicine. Right. Well, the thing that most people don't, don't have the nerve, shall we say, to, to go and ask somebody in person, you know, but, but be oh. careful with your sources. Verify your sources actually have training. Yep. You know, you know, well, and, and that's like everybody on the planet seems to call themselves a sex expert if they've had sex. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Check, check and make sure that they actually have qualifications. But uh, yeah, I actually had somebody go in and they they actually copy and pasted my experience and put it on their Facebook page. I'm like, whoa! <laughs> I worked wow. Yeah. Wow. That they yeah yeah that's yeah. pretty they're, amazing. They're even claiming that they they did the exact same training I did. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> I know that, yeah. or you didn't. But, uh, yeah, to say they're blocked is a huge understatement at this point. <laughs> I just, wow. Uh, too much too much work and effort went into it, you know? All right. Well, we've told people how to find you. I, I think we've probably piqued their interest on a few topics. <laughs> That's great. I just want to thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for what you're doing. You know, I, I'm glad folks are out there like you who are sharing these kinds of thoughtful messages. I, I think it really, your job and my job is to invite people to think about the choices they make and to think about why they're doing some of the things they do. And, uh, and if we get to help them in that, I just, you know, I think, I think it's a great day. Well, and, and think for themselves. Don't, yep. don't be told what to think. Think for yourself. Get educated and make an educated decision about things. It's been great to have you on the show, and like I said, I'm, I'm even more motivated now to dig even further into your book. <laughs> well, thank you, Nikki. So check out check out Dr. Lay on, on Twitter. He's on there now, so let's keep him busy. And yep. you can check, check me out. Uh, my blog is www.lovecoachjourney.com. I'm also on Facebook, Ready for Love, and I'm on Twitter, Ready, the number four, Love Radio. I hope you enjoyed the show tonight, and remember, there will be a replay posted on the website. Just go to www.lovecoachjourney.com, and I'll be with you again next week, Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on New Visions Radio. Dot com and also on the TuneIn app on New Visions Radio's channel. And 
I'll be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio.